Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. They are definitely tough, smart cookies. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much for your time, as always. You know, it was earlier this year that we did our annual look at remembering the three Apollo 1 astronauts who met death as they were trying to get ready to go into space. And, of course, we remember Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. But they have now been officially and now will forever be memorialized at Arlington National Cemetery. It was on January 27th, 1967, that America heard this. This is a CBS News special report. This is Mike Wallace at the CBS Newsroom in New York. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight during a launch pad test at Cape Kennedy in Florida. Virgil Gus Grissom, 40 years old, one of the original Mercury astronauts, the first American astronaut to go twice into space. Edward White, 36 years old, the first American to walk in space. And rookie astronaut Roger Chaffee, 31 years old, training for his first space flight, Apollo 1, scheduled for February 21st. These three astronauts were aboard their spaceship 10 minutes from a simulated liftoff at Cape Kennedy when the fire hit at about 6.30 tonight. They were inside their spaceship, pressurized, buttoned up inside their spacesuits when the fire hit. A closed-circuit television camera was relaying pictures of the astronauts lying on their backs inside the spacecraft to top the two-stage Saturn I. There was a flash, and that was it, according to a NASA spokesman watching the television screen in the blockhouse a few hundred yards away from launch pad 34. The screen went blank, and he said there was no communication from the astronauts. They died silently and apparently swiftly. Their bodies have been left in the spacecraft, according to the latest information from the Cape, pending an investigation into the disaster. President Johnson tonight mourned the death of the three astronauts. He said they gave their lives in the nation's service. Our brave men in uniform, whether in Vietnam or seeking the frontiers of the future, he said, mourn with all of us the tragic loss 
of three gallant and dedicated airmen. That from CBS newsman Mike Wallace. Grissom and Chaffee, they are already interred at Arlington. Ed White, he was buried at the Military Academy at West Point. But to this point, as of you know, two weeks ago, there was really nothing there at Arlington. That now has changed. At the height of the Cold War space race, a launch pad fire killed three Apollo astronauts. It was the first tragedy of the American space program. This week, more than half a century later, the accident, the crew of Apollo 1 was honored with a monument at Arlington National Cemetery. Chris Van Cleve reports. Abandoned decades ago, Cape Canaveral's Launch Complex 34 sits in a seemingly somber silence. Largely off-limits to the public, it's where the first American lives were lost, reaching for the stars. Is this hollowed ground? This is. This is hollowed ground because of the tragedy of Apollo 1 and the three lives lost here. Jamie Draper is the director of the Air Force Space and Missile Museum. The incident really shook not only the space program, but America to the core. On January 27, 1967, Three weeks before the launch, the crew of Apollo 1 suited up and arrived here for a dress rehearsal inside their command module, 218 feet atop a Saturn 1B rocket. Mission commander Gus Grissom, a veteran of the Mercury and Gemini missions, senior pilot Ed White, the first American to walk in space, and Roger Chaffee, a respected Navy pilot training for his first space flight, orbiting the Earth in the new Apollo capsule. But three hours into the test... Disaster. This is a CBS News special report. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight during a launch pad test at Cape Kennedy in Florida. The capsule had been pressurized with pure oxygen. A spark from faulty electrical wiring likely ignited the flash fire. It took five minutes for rescuers to open the hatch. By then, it was too late. So again, with our Just days before the fatal fire, Grissom spoke to CBS News. The possibility of a catastrophic failure bother you at all, sir? No, you sort of have to put that out of your mind. You just plan as best you can to take care of uh, all of these eventualities. And uh, you get a well-trained crew and you go fly. Though the country asked itself whether the moon was worth this human cost, the Apollo program pressed on. Less than two years after the Apollo 1 incident, Apollo 7 launched from this complex with all of the lessons learned from Apollo 1 incorporated. And it led to Apollo 8, eventually Apollo 11. Without their sacrifice, the program would not have been reconfigured and we would not have made it to the moon. Go and throttle up. But tragedy struck NASA again in 1986. Obviously a major malfunction. Columbia, Houston, com check. And 2003. Lock the doors. Copy. The 14 lives lost in the space shuttle Challenger and Columbia accidents were honored with memorials at Arlington National Cemetery. But not Apollo 1, even though Grissom and Chaffee were laid to rest there decades earlier. It was an easy visual to see this is missing. Lance Bush runs the Challenger Center, founded by the families of that shuttle accident. 
In 2015, he and many in the space community started pushing for an Apollo 1 monument at Arlington. If you ask somebody, what's this country's greatest achievements? I mean, uh, I am certain that walking on the moon is going to be in the top three. But that was built on the shoulders of a lot of people and a lot of sacrifice. And the Apollo 1 crew, it's a really important story. And that can be told there at Arlington. Finally, this week, 55 years after the accident, Apollo 1's story got its missing chapter. A new memorial to the crew was dedicated Thursday on hand where Chaffee's daughter Cheryl, White's daughter Bonnie, and Grissom's brother Lowell. Well, it was very solemn, long time coming. It's very nice that uh, we could finally get this done. This is all so appropriate for all three of the guys, and I'm very, very proud of, of my dad, and I just sort of wanted to have everybody remember, all three. You know, they were family men, but they were professionals. They were daring, and they had fun, you know. Um, they were just, just great people, and I would like to see people really go and look into who they were. In designing the monument, the families had one request, a Latin motto carved in stone, ad astra per aspera, a rough road leads to the stars, a message of perseverance that helped carry man to the moon. That from CBS News. And as we wrap up this segment, at the actual ceremony at Arlington. These are the guys who have blazed the trail for the rest of us. And the rest of us is all of us, especially now what NASA is doing in the heavens. It's extraordinary how we are reaching out back to the very beginning. And you'll see first light from the new telescope back to the very beginning the formation of the gases that formed the first galaxy. And that's coming in a month. We'll see that. And all of this has been built on the shoulders of the people who have sacrificed. Some in accidents that should have been prevented uh, certainly uh, of the three uh, major ones that we observe on the Day of Remembrance uh, at the end of January each year, Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia. But the innumerable people that gave their lives in training accidents in preparation uh, for this wonderful experience that we have all participated in called America's Space Program. So we honor these three today who were guided by a spirit of discovery and I might say a love of country. Blessings to those family members who remember their loved ones and rest in peace to the Apollo 1 crew. They are also memorialized at what's called the Space Mirror Memorial. That's at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. The hatch from that command module is on display nearby. And as we wrap up, craters both on the moon and the hills of Mars have been named for Grissom, White, and Chaffee. 
This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs. So glad you're with us on this season six premiere of the American Veteran Show. And the rest of the program is dedicated to something that happened in September of 1938. The meeting with British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and other leaders, including Adolf Hitler in Munich, Germany. Again, September 1938. The reason why this is important to me is, and it could be important to you if you're interested in this type of uh, historical event, is right now, and it's on Netflix, there is a film called Munich, Edge of War. Before we set up the rest of the program, here's the trailer. I believe the name Paul von Hartmann is known to you. Yes, sir. We were at Oxford together. He has a document in his possession. We'd like you to go to Munich tomorrow and get the document. It'll be an act of espionage on foreign soil. Men and women of Britain and the Empire. As long as war is not begun, there is always hope. Really good to see you again. What willst du von mir? Wir sind die letzte Hoffnung, um Hitler zu stoppen. Sein wahrer Plan für Europa. Hitler is lying when he claims to want peace. People will suffer. That document is the proof. Wohin wollen Sie? They'd kill you for even thinking about it. Komm sehr her. with a gangster without having some cards up on sleeve. Again, the trailer from the film Munich, Edge of War. And I've got to tell you, I didn't know a lot about the meeting in Munich in 38. And one of the reasons why I think it's very appropriate to discuss and, and certainly think about is, in a nutshell, Neville Chamberlain went to Munich and many urged him not to sign this agreement with Adolf Hitler and Germany. This was, again, 1938. Many people on the sidelines, so to speak, they thought that there was going to most certainly be a problem because what this basically allowed Germany to do was to invade the then Czechoslovakia. 
And many people, again, advisors and so forth, though many people supported what Neville Chamberlain eventually did, and that was to sign this agreement, many thought, hold on a minute. Many were telling the British officials that Adolf Hitler is a madman, and he has much bigger plans for Europe than just Czechoslovakia. Well, there was contemplation, and Neville Chamberlain obviously eventually still signed the agreement. Remember, he felt that basically, you know, we don't want to get involved as the United Kingdom. We don't want to get involved with these faraway lands. We'll have more on uh, Neville Chamberlain and addressing not only the British Empire, but it was broadcast here in the United States and uh, across Europe as he was going into this meeting. But I, I, I really wanted to bring this up this week as a topic for the rest of the program not just because it's our season six premiere, but because of what is going on right now between Russia and Ukraine, I'm not trying to make a stretch to say, look, this is exactly, you know, part and parcel with each other, though almost a hundred years later. But it makes you think, doesn't it? What Neville Chamberlain did not see and failed to see Adolf Hitler as eventually the madman and 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 the the murderous tyrannical leader that he was if we don't get involved in this as the united states right now between russia and ukraine which uh, your host here i do not want any more u.s troops i don't want any more war but it's very interesting i hope you can see possibly that parallel drawing between what's going on currently thousands and thousands of miles away with what happened in 1938 Uh, This from the BBC and kind of touting the meeting in Munich. I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus to contribute to assure the peace of Europe. From Heston, a triumphal progress as Mr. Chamberlain drives to report immediately to His Majesty the King at Buckingham Palace. That from the BBC, again, if you've listened to this program, again, on this Season 6 premiere, we hope you've been with us for every single episode, but we love using the old newsreel footage. Coming up in our next segment, you will hear the address that Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain delivered 
just ahead of his visit to Munich in September of 1938. We'll have that next. And appropriately, we want to thank all of you veterans. We honor you. We do this program every week because of you and, of course, our active duty. It's Kate Smith. To the break, this is the American Veteran Show, Season 6 premiere. Continue now with Stephen Tubbs. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, especially on a day like today, our season six premiere. Happy you are with us. And the rest of the program and last segment as well, we are focusing on what happened in September of 1938. We mentioned the movie that's out right now on Netflix. You can see it, Munich, Edge of War. I watched it within the last uh, week or so, and I started to want to get more information. Now, what you're about to hear, this is then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain addressing the world via the BBC, talking about his upcoming meeting in Munich with leaders, including Adolf Hitler. You can almost hear the dread in his voice. Tomorrow, Parliament is going to meet. And I shall be making a full statement of the events which have led up to the present anxious and critical situation. An earlier statement would not have been possible when I was flying backwards and forwards across Europe and the position was changing from hour to hour. But today there is a lull for a brief time and I want to say a few words to you men and women of Britain and the Empire and perhaps to others as well. And first of all, I must say something to those who have written to my wife or myself in these last weeks to tell us of their gratitude for my efforts and to assure us of their prayers for my success. 
Most of these letters have come from women, mothers or sisters of our own countrymen. But there are countless others besides, from France, from Belgium, from Italy, even from Germany. And it has been heartbreaking to read the growing anxiety they reveal and their intense relief when they thought too soon that the danger of war was past. If I felt my responsibility heavy before, to read such letters has made it seem almost overwhelming. How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. It seems still more impossible that a quarrel which is already settled in principle should be the subject of war. I can well understand the reasons why the Czech government have felt unable to accept the terms which have been put before them in the German memorandum. Yet I believe after my talks with Herr Hitler, that if only time were allowed, it ought to be possible for the arrangements for transferring the territory that the Czech government has agreed to give to Germany to be settled by agreement under conditions which would ensure fair treatment for the population concerned. You know already that I have done all that one man can do to compose this quarrel. After my visits to Germany, I realized vividly how Herr Hitler feels that he must champion other Germans. And his indignation, the grievances have not been met before this. He told me privately, and last night he repeated publicly, that after this Sudeten German question is settled, that is the end of Germany's territorial claims in Europe. After my first visit to Berchtesgaden, I did get the assent of the Czech government to proposals which gave the substance of what Herr Hitler wanted, and I was taken completely by surprise. When I got back to Germany, and found that he insisted that the territory should be handed over to him immediately. And immediately occupied by German troops, without previous arrangements for safeguarding the people within the territory who were not Germans or who did not want to join the German Reich. I must say that I find this attitude unreasonable. If it arises out of any doubts that Herr Hitler feels about the intentions of the Czech government to carry out their promises and hand over the territory, I've offered on the part of the British government to guarantee their words. And I'm sure the value of our promise will not be underrated anywhere. I shall not give up the hope of a peaceful solution or abandon my efforts for peace as long as any chance for peace remains. I would not hesitate to pay even a third visit to Germany if I thought it would do any good. 
but at this moment I see nothing further that I can usefully do in the way of mediation. Meanwhile, there are certain things that we can and should do at home. Volunteers are still wanted for air raid precautions, for fire brigade and police services, and for the territorial units. I know that all of you, men and women alike, are ready to play your part in the defense of the country, and I ask you to offer your services, if you have not already done so, to the local authorities who will tell you if you are wanted and in what capacity. Don't be alarmed if you hear of men being called up to man anti-aircraft defenses or ships. These are only precautionary measures such as a government must take in times like this, but they do not necessarily mean that we have determined on war or that war is imminent. However much we may sympathize with a small nation confronted by a big and powerful neighbor, we cannot, in all circumstances, undertake to involve the whole British Empire in war simply on her account. If we have to fight, it must be on larger issues than that. I am myself a man of peace to the depths of my soul. Armed conflict between nations is a nightmare to me. But if I were convinced that any nation had made up its mind to dominate the world by fear of its force, I should feel that it must be resisted. Under such a domination, life for people who believe in liberty would not be worth living. But war is a fearful thing, and we must be very clear before we embark on it that it is really the great issues that are at stake and that the call to risk everything in their defense when all the consequences are weighed is irresistible. For the present, I ask you to wait as calmly as you can for the events of the next few days. As long as war has not begun, it is always hoped that it may be prevented. And you know that I am going to work for peace to the last moment. That from the BBC, September 27, 1938, just a few days before Neville Chamberlain would actually sign the agreement in Munich with Adolf Hitler. You can say it's a stretch. I personally don't think it is. They tried to make sure they were screaming from their own mountaintops. There's a problem here. Hitler is a problem to the world, and as Neville Chamberlain said, and of course, he was mistaken, he referred to what was going on in the fall of 1938 as a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing, close quote. We know he would end up being wrong. Are there any connections between what's going on in Russia and Ukraine with maybe some historical perspective? Neville Chamberlain would die just uh, not too many months later he had been ill we'll continue one more segment on munich 1938 glad you're with us on this season premiere season six of the american veteran show americanveteranshow.com
This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Final segment of our Season 6 premiere, and again, we thank so much you for listening. We thank John Boson, our presenting sponsor, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every day. Their number, 303-999-9999. Uh, The last couple of segments, we have focused on Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England in uh, September of 1938, going to Munich. This whole kind of last three segments inspired, when I watched a a film recently, in fact, within the last week or so, it's called Munich, Edge of War, and it is a really good film. Um, the one of the lead actors is in one of the great films on World War One, just from a couple of years ago, and Peter Jackson, 1917. So you'll see uh, some familiar cast members. But it got me to thinking as uh, we were preparing for the show this week, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Can you really overlook it? Is it possible that there are parallels between Neville Chamberlain going to Munich and eventually signing an agreement? thinking he was going to keep the United Kingdom out of war when, in fact, some of the warning signs were missed and it would turn out that Hitler had many more plans, obviously, than just invading Czechoslovakia and spreading uh, land, if you will, for for Germany. So he has the meeting. Last segment, you heard the, the speech that he gave to the empire. It was heard in the United States and across Europe. Um, this is how the BBC described it post-meeting. So our Prime Minister has come back from his third and greatest journey, and he said that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries, and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus to contribute to assure the peace of Europe. Now, 
was no sign of British reserve as the crowds fought to get near the Premier's car. Again, from the BBC. And we wrap up this uh, program today with a little bit of a, a history lesson on what happened in Munich, the Munich Agreement, September of 1938. This from the Council on Foreign Relations. Our topic today is the Munich Agreement, which was signed by the leaders of Germany, Italy, Britain, and France in the early morning hours of September 30th, 1938. The backdrop to the Munich Agreement is Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany's remilitarization. Hitler was elected Chancellor of Germany in 1933. A year later, he made himself a dictator or Fuhrer and ushered in the Third Reich. Hitler moved aggressively to jumpstart a foundering German economy and to jettison the constraints that had been imposed on the German military after World War I. European leaders nervously looked the other way as he ran roughshod over the security provisions of the Treaty of Versailles and reasserted German power in Central Europe. One goal of Hitler's policies was to create Lebensraum, or greater living space, for Germans. The belief that Germany needed expanded borders included the idea that ethnic Germans living in neighboring countries should come under German rule. In March 1938, Germany absorbed Austria in the Anschluss. Hitler then turned his attention to the Sudetenland, those parts of Czechoslovakia where some three million ethnic Germans predominated. Hitler grew increasingly hostile to Czechoslovakia over the course of the summer of 1938. In mid-September, he gave a fiery anti-Czech speech, raising fears that war was imminent. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain responded by rushing to Germany for talks to keep the continent at peace. On October 1, 1938, Czechoslovakian frontier guards left their posts and German troops moved into the Sudetenland. The day before, Chamberlain had flown back to London where he was met by cheering crowds. He waved a memo Hitler had signed pledging Germany's peaceful intentions and told the crowd that he had brought peace for our time. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples Never to go to war with one another again. Not all of Chamberlain's fellow Britons believed that he had saved the day. Winston Churchill's response to what Chamberlain had wrought at Munich was withering. You were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor and you will have war. As we all know, Churchill was right. Eleven months after the Munich Agreement was signed to cheers, German troops invaded Poland. The Second World War had begun. The terms Munich and appeasement entered the diplomatic hall of shame. What is the lesson of the Munich Agreement? Just this. Appeasing an adversary's demands may diffuse a crisis, but it can also increase the chances of war by emboldening that adversary to demand more. Chamberlain thought that if Germany gained the Sudetenland, that Hitler would finally be satisfied with the status quo in Europe. But Hitler instead viewed Munich as confirming his belief that Britain and France both lacked the will to stop German expansion. It is worth remembering the Munich Agreement as we survey potential threats around the globe today. 
China is a growing military power that is challenging the territorial claims of its neighbors in Northeast and Southeast Asia. Iran seeks to become a nuclear power, a development that could upend the geopolitical order in the Middle East. In these and other instances, the United States must weigh the risk that diplomacy and compromise will signal weakness and invite war against the risk that standing firm will poison relations and trigger conflicts that could have been avoided. Unfortunately, which of these risks is greater is usually far clearer when looking backward in history than when looking forward into the future. So here's a question to consider. On what issue or conflict is the United States most likely to repeat Neville Chamberlain's mistake? That from the Council on Foreign Relations. And the last few segments, we have focused on September of 1938, the Munich Agreement. Again, I highly recommend catching it online. Munich, Edge of War. Uh, done within the last couple of years. And the reason why I wanted to, as we start season six, put this out there to just at least for all of us to think about is right now, I don't want war. I don't want any U.S. I don't want one member of our U.S. military stepping foot in Ukraine. Maybe many of you agree. But at the same time, are we overlooking some important stuff? And may history be our guide? Again, Neville Chamberlain, when he was prime minister, September 1938, he certainly did not see Hitler as Hitler would eventually be. So thank you for joining us, our season six premiere, our wonderful producer, Matt Steinkruger. Thank you for any time you give us. Tell a friend and visit our website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. I'm Stephen Tubbs. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And remember our troops. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the U.S. Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. That's cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP.